This audio is from the Axis Church and is from our sermon series, The Gospel of Matthew, Following the Unexpected King. For more information about the Axis Church or its mission in Nashville, Tennessee, go to theaxischurch.org. Let's pray and, and ask Jesus to help us, and, uh, and we will get busy here in Matthew chapter 9. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the precious people who are here. Lord, I ask that you would come in power and that you would flex your magnificence and your authority before us today. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we will uh, be aware, that we would uh, be engaged, and that, uh, Lord, we wouldn't have our, our walls up and we wouldn't be punching, Lord, the, the words that you're speaking here, but, Lord, that we would just consider and receive what it is that you're saying and then process it, not just dismiss it as something we've heard before or dismiss it as something that doesn't apply to us personally, but, Lord, that we would engage in it and give it what it deserves, that we would give it thought, that we would give it heavy consideration, and, Lord, that you would use that to bring uh, a deeper awareness of who you are to our own souls, whether there's people who aren't believers or whether they've been believers for 20 years. Just speak to our hearts today. And allow us the grace needed to truly hear you and truly see you. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Matthew 9. Let's look at verse 9. And Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man called Matthew. Okay, this is Matthew, the guy who's writing this narrative that we have here before us. This gospel. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. Sitting at a customs booth on the border near Capernaum. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now people considered these tax collectors, Matthew was a tax collector. People considered these tax collectors to be much like an IRS agent who also had a part-time gig as a terrorist. All right. So he would, he, he would collect taxes on behalf of the Roman government who was occupying modern-day Jerusalem. And then he also would get benefits. He would get even more money, personally, the bulk of his salary, from taxing the poor people, taxing the oppressed people of the children of Israel. And so he would go seek out those vulnerable people and tax them. So tax collectors were, they weren't only notoriously known for their exploitation and financial corruption, but also religiously and politically ostracized because they were the ones who were working along with the Roman government, though themselves were Jews, okay? So the Jews viewed them a certain way, and the Romans viewed tax collectors a certain way. The Jews saw them as traitors. The Jews saw them as someone who was, was playing for the other team, but then also they saw them, because of that, as defiled, because they were always around Gentiles. They were always around the, the Romans, and so they were ceremonially unclean. So they were religiously unfit. But then the Romans saw them as pawns, as desperate pawns who would do anything for a few pennies. Almost beggars that had jobs. Like they were just, it, they, would, they would do anything. They would throw away their nationality for the sake of getting a dollar. And so being a tax collector, Matthew himself was politically unacceptable. He was religiously unacceptable. And he was socially unacceptable. 
Typically, these tax collectors would be extremely lonely people in society, typically only finding community with other tax collectors and other desperate people who would do almost anything for money. But here's the wonderful thing. Though politically unacceptable and religiously unacceptable and socially unacceptable, he is not unacceptable to Jesus. And that's what truly matters. Something radical took place in the heart of Matthew right here. And up until this point, the disciples had such little faith. I mean, all, I mean, if you've been with us in our journey through Matthew, man, so many people have just like not even a mustard seed of faith. Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. But then Jesus knew the guy's heart and said, look, you're not going to find a home, a nice home with security with me. Lord, I'll follow you anywhere, but let me first go take care of some stuff. And then the desperate call for, for Jesus to help as the storm is raging. This, he, Jesus stands and says, oh, ye of little faith. Like, did you not think I could handle the storm? And so up until this point, the disciples didn't display a lot of faith. But here, Matthew displays and exercises an extraordinary level of faith in Jesus Christ. It's as if Jesus causes Matthew to see something about Jesus and that changed everything. And what happens is Jesus redefines Matthew. He re-identifies Matthew. He gives him a purpose. He gives him value. He gives him worth. He gives him a fresh start. And Matthew, along with everyone else, felt that his status and his identity was written in stone, that nothing could ever change it. The dream of being anything other than an unclean crook had died. That was a long-distant past memory. He was who he was. He was hated by others. People didn't like him. And perhaps Matthew himself hated himself more than even the others. This was typical for tax collectors in this place. He was who he was, and nothing could change that. Yet Jesus calls out to Matthew. Jesus calls out and says, follow me or come and learn from me. Come be my disciple. Come and allow me to change you. And as I've mentioned before in other sermons, this never happened for a rabbi to call out to a disciple like this. It never happened before. If a potential disciple wanted a rabbi, he would ask, can I follow you? And the rabbi would say, yes, follow me for a certain number of months and allow me to see if you have the passion and the ability the knowledge to be able to be my disciple. And they would follow for months and then randomly be dismissed. Or they would be invited into being a disciple and then discipled into a rabbi themselves. That was typical. But here, Jesus, a rabbi, pursues Matthew, who had apparently already gotten kicked out of rabbi school, which is called Beth Midrash. Because if you don't get into that, that's your dream as a Jew, as a Jewish boy. If you don't get into that, you go learn your father's trade so we can assume that Matthew's daddy was a tax collector, that he'd already been kicked out and deemed not good enough to the Jews as far as being a rabbi. So he goes and learns his dad's trade. And yet Jesus looks beyond what is lacking in Matthew. He looks beyond his reputation and calls out to him. 
And Jesus saves him. And recording, in recording this, Matthew wants us to be aware of the fact that he was lost and Jesus found him and Jesus saved him and changed him. Luke records this in chapter 5. Matthew doesn't give us this, but, but Luke adds that he left everything. That Matthew left everything. His job, his position, his security, his income in order to follow Jesus. It's beautiful. And so then he does, look at verse 10, he does the reasonable thing and he throws a huge party for Jesus. It's like a reception. He wanted his buddies, his friends to be introduced to Jesus. He's already a missionary here. Look at verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, being Matthew's home, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the disciples saw that, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, to the men who were following Jesus, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this is an informal, relaxed meal with friends, but it's packed with significance and intimacy. For a devout Jew, this would never happen. You would never associate with these people. This was unthinkable. These sinners were just common folk who were just very simple, and they didn't get all caught up in keeping all the ceremonies that the Pharisees would keep. But this term also means it was used for people to describe the detestable people of society, addicts, prostitutes, thieves, criminals, but then also these religious renegades, the outlaws on the outskirts of Jewish tradition. And so for the, for the Pharisees, they had one big category. They were us and then the sinners. And the sinners could be someone who failed to give a sacrifice one time last month. And they're just as defiled and detestable as the, as the one who is given to prostitution, addiction, demonic possession. So this is the way that they're using this as they see these tax collectors. It lets you see the difference between the Pharisees and the tax collectors, just how much they hated these people. Can you not tell a person's character by the company that he keeps? This is kind of what you think the Pharisees, you can see the Pharisees doing. Man, if you lay down with garbage, aren't you going to smell like garbage? And besides, when the Messiah comes, isn't he going to get rid of all the detestable people like these sinners and establish us, the righteous ones? Isn't he going to show us favor? Isn't he going to applaud us? Isn't he going to purify the land from these types of people? You see, they had a box for the Messiah, and he was going to do just these things, and they didn't have the awareness that the Messiah was going to show mercy to the people who were sinners. Look at verse 12. But when Jesus, when he heard it, he said, those who are well, they have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this mercy, that word mercy there is uh, perhaps in your Bible, uh, loving kindness. It, it, it points to the fact of it's love extended to someone who not only doesn't deserve it, but they can do nothing but receive. They're in such a place of need, they can't give anything. They're incapable of helping themselves, being mercy, being merciful to those types of 
people. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So first, let's take a look at what this Old Testament verse that Jesus quotes here, what it, what it is. And I know for my whole life, I've just skimmed over this passage, just thinking, well, that's kind of odd, mercy, sacrifice. I didn't even really study it to find out that it was from Hosea in the Old Testament. I just kind of moved on assuming what it meant, and I've learned a lot through this. This is from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's an 8th century B.C. prophet speaking to Israel. And the context of Hosea's day, now the Pharisees were experts in the law. They knew exactly, as soon as they heard Jesus say, I desire mercy, he didn't have to finish. The Pharisees would be like, Hosea. And they would know the context of what that verse was in Hosea, what it was pointing to, why it was given by, by God through the prophet Hosea to the people of Israel. They would know it. I mean, they're experts. But we don't know it because we are not students of the law like the Pharisees were. And so here's what this means. You see, in the context of Hosea's day, God, through the prophet Hosea, was telling the religious leaders, the equivalent of the Pharisees in the New Testament era, that although they continued being faithful in the temple rituals, they lost the center and the heart of their God-given religion. Their God-given religion, God had given them this religion as a means of being in covenant relationship with him. It was radical mercy that God did this. And God is speaking through Hosea, saying, from my perspective, these religious leaders are disobedient. They themselves are traitors, despite their faithfulness to their religious formalities and their ceremonies. So when they hear this, they knew what Jesus was getting at. In serving God, they had forgotten God. They had forgotten that it was God, that they, the God who they claimed to serve was a compassionate and merciful God who had delivered them out of Egypt, who had established, graciously established covenants in order for them to be in relationship with him. That he's the God who revealed himself in countless ways in order to love them and to be their God and for them to be his people that he had graciously given them a sacrificial system as a way of atoning for their sin so that they could be in relationship with him, that he's the God who cared for them and guided them towards holiness and obedience to the law, that he's the one who was leading them to the promised land, and that he was the one who had promised them a deliverer, the Messiah, who would come and ultimately be the answer to every single promise that God had given. Radical grace. Radical mercy for God to intervene and speak to the hearts of these, these children of Israel to call to himself and make them a people. They had forgotten that they too themselves are in need of mercy and that God was merciful to them. That he had sought them out and called them to himself and formed them as a nation. And now Jesus says here in this passage that he's come not to call the righteous, but sinners, just like God when he stepped into human history through his prophets and formed covenants with his people. This is the same thing that God's been about from the beginning, pursuing the unrighteous and loving them graciously and making them righteous himself. Jesus isn't simply telling the Pharisees to go work harder at being compassionate 
Go try harder at loving the unlovable. Go give more to those who have less. That's mere moralism. It's absolutely insufficient, and it's not at all what Jesus is speaking of here. Here in using Hosea, Jesus is categorizing the Pharisees with the religious traitors of ancient Israel. The Pharisees had preserved the shell of righteousness, but their heart was, it was dirty to the core, sinful to the core. Their attitude to tax collectors and sinners just proves this. And Jesus knew this. And when he says, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners, he's not suggesting that the Pharisees are genuinely righteous and without need of him. He's essentially saying that this is my mission. This is the way I see my mission. My mission is characterized by grace, by a pursuit of the lost, the hurting, the sick, and the sinful. And contrary to what the Pharisees thought, he didn't come to establish the righteous and do away with the sinner, but he came to seek out and save the sinner. He came to win the sinners to himself, to make them his friends and make them righteous enough through his saving work. And those who didn't think that Jesus came to save sinners, but to only get the best of the best, that Bible quiz, he says, I didn't come for you. This is striking. Jesus came to call the disgusting, the despised, the sinners of society. There were many then, and there's many even today, who promote themselves as righteous, as good enough through their self-justification. I mean, it's typical. You ask anybody, do you, do you believe in heaven? Well, sure, okay. Perhaps majority of people will say yes. Well, what makes you think you can go there? Well, I'm a good person. It's as if they've justified themselves and made themselves good. It's at the heart of what these Pharisees would point at. Well, look at how obedient I am to the law. And you compare with others. I'm not like these other sinners. I'm not like them. I'm, I'm ceremonially clean. Do you know how dirty they are? And, and and how different I am from them, which that typically takes their eyes off of God who we can't be compared to. And we look at others who we could possibly be compared to, but that's not the mark. The mark is the holiness of God, not how holy someone else is. It's not a race like that. Jesus essentially says, if that's the posture of your heart, I didn't come for you. Their understanding of what the Christian religion is all about is so warped that the only way that he can begin to make them understand this is to insist that he came for the very ones that they despise. He's trying to wake them up with these words. He's trying to grab their attention and engage their heart. Their minds were so packed with knowledge, yet their heart was off. He's engaging their heart with these words. And the people who think they're worthy of the Messiah's attention are no more worthy than the people they think they're better than. And I find it interesting that both groups of people here, the Pharisees as well as the sinners, are both in need of mercy, whether they realize it or not. Christ came to quicken the dead. Christ came to justify the guilty and condemned. Christ came to wash those who were polluted and full of wickedness. 
to rescue the lost from hell and to clothe with his glory those who were covered with shame, to renew a blessed immortality to those who were debased by disgusting vices. To the Pharisees, to be dead, guilty, condemned, polluted, lost, shamed, and debased by disgusting vices, you were hopeless. You had to be righteous. And they defined what that meant. Rather than looking to Jesus and hearing that he came for those very people who are shamed and guilty and condemned. Now let's look at what Jesus says these religious leaders are to do with Hosea 6. So that was context for Hosea 6. Now let's look at what, what they were to do. Look at this. He says, go and learn. You see that in verse 13? That was a cultural phrase that everyone knew. Like if, you, if, if I were to come up and say, hey, you need to go and learn whatever, they would be like, who do you think you are? You're not a rabbi. Like it was a, it was a term only for the religiously superior people to say, go and learn. You had to be a rabbi to use that phrase or else it was just a joke. It was a cultural phrase. Go and learn was a, it was a common phrase used by rabbis to direct their audience to the Old Testament, to dig deeper in the scriptures, to learn something that the rabbi knew and he knew that they did not know. So he would say, go and learn what this means. And so to tell a Pharisee, go and learn was very strong language. It was rabbi-disciple language. A rabbi would say often, come and see. You hear Jesus say it a lot. Come and see. And that, to hear a rabbi say that, adrenaline would start flowing. Your heart would start racing. You would become giddy. Like you're just like, man, this is awesome. This is such a radical opportunity. But then to hear go and learn, even for a disciple, there'd be this lump in your throat because it was a, a gentle rebuke, yet it's still packed with grace as, as Jesus and other rabbis would say it in order to guide their followers deeper into the scriptures. But for Jesus to say, go and learn to the Pharisees, this was highly offensive. They haven't been taught, told those words in probably years. That's, that's, placing them as juveniles before Jesus because they were simply the experts. Now, Jesus wasn't saying to trash the law when he says, I've not come for sacrifice, but he was pushing them to see that behind obedience to the law, summarizing sacrifice as a summary statement for the law, that there had to be a heart that longed to be gracious and merciful to others, again, because the sacrificial system itself was given as an act of mercy. What Jesus is getting at is what David gives us in Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. When Jesus refers to the righteous here, he's not speaking of those who have a truly pure and obedient heart before God. Rather, he's identifying the Pharisees who gave their lives to performing, who gave their lives to appearing righteous and just being posers on the outside, yet inwardly they were just as guilty as those who were sitting at the table with Jesus. 
You know, one of the greatest blessings that we can have is the self-awareness of who we really are. The self-awareness of our need and not being ignorant to the fact that we are sinners too. The first step in solving a problem is realizing that there is one. You know, if these, if these men were truly righteous, they wouldn't have judged Jesus. They wouldn't have judged the other, quote, sinners. They would have shown them mercy. The word sinner is not merely a blanket statement for all of humanity, though we all are sinners. The word that Jesus uses here indicates that there is a light that's turned on in the heart of this person. It's that it's people who are aware that, that they aren't perfect and they need someone to help them. They're aware of their need for forgiveness and they're beginning to see Jesus as the one who has come to set them free and to save them from their sin. Excuse me, and to save them from their sin. Jesus says the sick need a doctor. And so Jesus heals them as the doctor. And likewise, the sinful, they need a savior. They need mercy and forgiveness and restoration. And Jesus is this, and he heals them. This goes back to Matthew 121, where the angel comes and, and says that she, Mary, will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This was always the mission of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, who entered human history as one sent by God to redeem and rescue a people for himself, reconciling them to God the Father, his Father, so that one day all of those who are rescued and redeemed will be there in the presence of Jesus before the throne of God, making much of God forever and ever and ever. This is why Jesus came. Jesus reconciles, he redeems, he rescues, and he saves through his life and his death and his resurrection. You see, Jesus came and he lived a perfect life as our representative. Jesus came and died on the cross for our sin as our substitute, taking on the wrath of God that you read about all through the Old Testament, taking on the wrath of God for us so that we don't have to experience that so that we can rather be saved. And then we see Jesus beating death for us so that we too will live forever with him in paradise. Just as doctors exist for those who are sick, so Jesus the Savior came and exists for those who are sinners. But there's two qualifiers to be in the group that Jesus is calling to himself. One, you have to be a sinner. I'm there. And I think most of us in this room would say, okay, I'm, I'm not perfect. So to use your category, I'm a sinner. But then secondly, you have to be aware of your need for mercy and forgiveness for that sin. So it begs the questions, are you a sinner? And do you realize your need for mercy and forgiveness? My prayer is that we will all see that we are needy sinners in need of a savior, a merciful savior at that. You see, our sin, unforgiven, unconfessed, don't believe Jesus, our, that sin separates us from God. Our sin is ever before us, and Jesus came to destroy this for us. It's an offense to God, and our sin has destroyed our relationship with him. Isaiah records it this way, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your sin, your iniquities, have made a separation between you and your God. 
You see that? And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For our transgressions or sins are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and this is key here, and we know our iniquities. We know our sins. That's such a gift to be aware of our sin. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. This knowledge, this self-awareness, this soul awareness, this sin awareness must be present. But the good news is that God is present too. That God stands ready to forgive as we cry out to him for mercy in the saving name of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that you would see your need for Jesus. Whether you've been a Christian for 10 years or whether you're not even a Christian this morning, that you would see your need for Jesus and that you never outgrow your need for Jesus or outlearn your need for Jesus, ever. And this continual awareness of our need for Jesus is, is it's what is at the heart of repentance. And Luke 5, verse 32, in Luke's account of this event he, he adds to this of what Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. That's what Matthew gives us. But then Luke continues the thought of, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. I've called them to something, and that's repentance. Charles Spurgeon says, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, and it's a mourning that we've committed that sin and it's a resolution to forsake that sin. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love that which he hated and hate what he once loved. J.I. Packer says repentance means turning, I love this, turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as your knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. That you never stop repenting. That you grow in repentance. And then finally, John Piper says, repenting means experiencing a change of mind that now sees God as true and beautiful and worthy of all our praise and all our obedience. Some here today may be feeling like Matthew, where the mistakes of the past have identified you and you are now hopeless for changing. It's been etched in stone. You are who you are and you perhaps don't even like who you've become. You consider yourself dirty and those around you deem you as not good enough. You're profiled, you're categorized as something that you want to change but you simply don't know how. My prayer is that you would see yourself as Matthew here, and hear Jesus calling out to you, saying, follow me. I will make you good enough. I want you. I can give you a transformation. I can give you a, a rebirth. I can change you, and I can change you in ways that you could never thought were possible. And there's Christians who are here like Matthew, Jesus has called us to himself and we're no longer identified by who we used to be or even by the sins that we still commit today, but we're identified, identified by Jesus' perfection, by his sinlessness. And for this, we celebrate and we thank God for what he's done in our lives. We remember his saving work for us. 
What a blessing it is to be a Christian. Jesus is calling out to us to acknowledge him and to acknowledge our sin, turning to him in repentance and overflowing gratitude of his unending forgiveness. And this radical love that we've been shown in Jesus through his work and through saving us should motivate us to obey God and give our lives to introducing others to our wonderful Savior. Jesus is calling us to go as Matthew went, inviting his friends to Jesus, inviting his friends to meet Jesus personally. Matthew was hopeless, but then Jesus changed him and gave him hope, and he wanted his friends to experience this same heart change. There were other tax collectors just like him. And his hope was, well, if Jesus could love me, he, he could probably love them too. This is at the heart of what it means to be Christian. It's this gratitude in, in your soul that you want other people to experience, and you want other people to come and taste and see that he's good. May we all, like Matthew, open our homes to the hurting and the needy, introducing them to Jesus, knowing that it's Jesus that we're all looking for. My prayer is that we would see Jesus for who he is, and that we would see us for who we really are, and that we would not make excuses, that we would just accept those realities and respond to the salvation of the Lord provided in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us today. Jesus, Lord, thank you for the way that you taught and the way that you engaged us. Lord, thank you for speaking truth, graciously speaking truth, Lord, to those who had you in a box, who had you limited, who had you, uh, Lord, only coming in this one way. Lord, thank you that you did not come for the, quote, righteous, but you came for the sinners, you came for the needy, you came for the lost and the hurting. Lord, my prayer is that, that we would just, as Matthew responded, that we would just get up and follow you. We would embrace your salvation and that we would pursue you and encourage others to pursue you the rest of our lives. Lord, help us not outgrow our need or outlearn our need for repentance or for you. Lord, continue to set us free from our sin and protect us, keep us far from judging others the way that it's so easy to, as these Pharisees prove how simple and easy it is to drift there. God, would we continue to show mercy and continue to show grace, especially to those whose society pushes away, knowing that you didn't push us away, but you came to us and pulled us close. God, let that truth radically set us free from self-righteousness and allow us to be humble people who simply follow you the best way that we know how. Holy Spirit, please lead our church. Please lead us individually and corporately, Lord, to, to embrace the merciful or to embrace the needy and show them mercy and to believe you more and more each day. In Christ's name I pray, amen.